giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I'm your other host, Lindsay Christensen. And we're joined again today by Nurse One One CEO and founder. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks for having me. What fundraising stage is Nurse One One at? <laughs> the perpetual fundraising stage. Um, it, it's you know we've had two rounds of financing. We had a small seed round, and then we had another, uh, I would say, small seed round as well early this year. So we've raised only about one point two million in the life of of this company. So I guess that's the stage we're at. Um, you know where we go from here. I, I don't know what the next stage is. I guess people are putting labels on these stages, but I guess we've had two seed rounds if that makes sense. <laughs> and the amount of money that you've raised, how intentional have you been about that? I, I think we've been more intentional about who we raise from um, mm. than how much we're raising. We've always thought that we're going after a, a really big market and it's a really big opportunity. It's hard to always tell how quickly a market is going to develop. So we never wanted to raise more money than we could put to use in the short term. But I think the market sort of helps determine for us how much money uh, we are going to raise on on the higher end. So we could go out right now and say we want to raise a billion dollars. It's just not going to happen. We have to prove we have to prove ourselves first. And so that's sort of the largest factor is like if we can get through the next six months to a year and hit these milestones that we know we could already hit, then we'll be in a much better shape. Not so much to raise more money, but to raise money from the investors that we think are the most strategic for us in the future. What do you look for in those strategic investors and why is that important? I think it's super important, not just for our company, but any company to have investors who are aligned with the vision and the mission of the company. And I think it's really hard you know, during the process of fundraising to build those relationships with investors to make sure that they're doing it for the right reasons, that they're seeing the exact same thing that we're seeing, uh, that they believe in us as a team to do it. You know, all these things sort of have to align in, in order to be the perfect investor. And then from our standpoint, it's also to make sure that there's something other than money that we're getting out of the investment, right? That they have an insight on the market that we might not be seeing, that they got connections that they can introduce us to that that we would never be able to get otherwise. Those are the two things. But then also just an investor who understands the path that a company has to take, in our case, in healthcare, where there's going to be bumps in the roads, giant turns that come up, pandemics that come out of nowhere that change everything. These are sort of the lessons that that a, a startup has to learn as it maneuvers and to make sure that you have an investor who's not only understands that, but you know, hopefully has been there, has helped maneuver a couple of startups through these types of situations and help guide us in, in those types of uh, ways. Are your investors from more financial backgrounds or more medical backgrounds? It's a mix. We, we do have a lot that have medical backgrounds. Uh, we have doctors that sit on an advisory board who also invested in us. One of our largest investors is from a financial background. It's sort of a mix. And I think that's the great part of having a good team of investors behind us is that depending on the different type of challenges we're facing, there's always someone that we can reach back out to and, and ask for their advice and guidance and, and, and help us with whatever that situation is. 
So what experience did you have before Nurse 1-1 with fundraising? Uh, <laughs> I was actually talking to my CTO a couple of months ago as we were fundraising. And I said, I don't know if there's another entrepreneur who for the past 20 years has been slogging out a fundraise nonstop <laughs> than, <laughs> than myself. I've founded five companies. I've raised seven rounds of financing for three of those companies. And about in total, I've raised about 15 million, uh, 10 of that being from just a single round. I did this like quick math. Uh, I have a spreadsheet of every single investor that I've ever pitched, whether that be a phone call or an actual in meeting. I take notes on all this stuff. It's just over 300 investors that I've at least had a phone call with, never mind meetings and multiple meetings. And that's my experience. I've, I've actually raised from 38 investors, eight firms, about 30 angels in my career over the past 20 years. So it's not new to me. It, it's not, you know, you think of 20 years as an entrepreneur, you're either this like uber successful entrepreneur or you're failed along the way. And, and now you're doing something else. I think it's rare uh, to be someone who has spent 20 years that has had some successes, is able to keep going as a, an entrepreneur, but you know, isn't able to just close the round because they put out a tweet saying that they're starting a company. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've had quite a bit experience fundraising. It's always a slog for me. It's never an easy fundraise at all, but that's sort of been my career is building companies and pitching investors, building relationships with them, and you know, hopefully at some point getting a yes every once in a while. Has it gotten any easier? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's changed. I I think when you're just starting out, nobody has any expectations for you at all. And the challenge there is to get the meetings and to win them over and to take a bet that what you're doing and and the team you're building and who you are is, is the right one for them. I think as you start to get experience and you've been in the market, the questions of like, why are you pitching me if you've been doing this for almost 20 years? Like, shouldn't you have an investor with deep pockets who just like funds everything you do? I think those questions start to come into play. And so I think the challenges of, you know, you've been working on this company for how long, you know, three years now, and it's in healthcare. So it's going to not just take off like that last consumer startup you had. I think the history either plays into this being slam dunk, you know, obviously I'm going to invest in somebody or it turns into this like, well, is this the time that this entrepreneur is finally going to have this huge hit? I think that's the challenge that I'm, I'm facing now as I fundraise. What's the difference between pitching or, or working with angel investors versus, you know, institutional firms? I don't know if there's like a, a distinct difference. And and I think mm-hmm. the reason for this is what, what I've seen in firms is that not only are is every firm different, but every investor at every firm is very different. And so I haven't been able to find this pattern of, well, this is a VC firm, so I need to pitch it this way. And, and this is an angel, so I need to pitch it this other way. I haven't been able to find those types of patterns. What, what I always try to do, whether it's a firm or it's an angel, is just lay out exactly what we're doing, find out, you know, what motivates them personally. I think sometimes with a firm, you have to understand the process that they're going to have, the constraints that they might have, where an angel might not have the same type of constraints where, 
the investor that you're talking to at a firm really wants to be in, but there's a couple of other people at the firm or a process they need to go through that also has to have buy-in. Um, so there can be a couple more steps when you're fundraising from a firm, but I, I tend not to, at least at the first few meetings, even think about that. My goal in the first few meetings is just to size up the person that I'm talking to and figure out if they really believe what we're seeing that they're motivated and that they, they, they're they excited by what I'm presenting in front of them. I think that's the goal, no matter whether it's a firm or whether it's an angel. When you're pitching to an investor who isn't from the healthcare space, what do you have to kind of get them up to speed about or set expectations around? Yeah, I think that's the challenge of healthcare right now is that the traditional healthcare companies that have raised from the traditional healthcare investors can't just do business as usual. There's a consumer face aspect to healthcare as we move forward. I think anything that is going to actually be a big hit in healthcare in the next five to 10 years is going to have a lot of direct consumer aspects to the company. And, and so when we're pitching someone who's not in the healthcare space, we're probably looking at somebody who has those types of skill sets. So maybe they have a whole lot of direct consumer products that they've backed. It could be B2B. We are a B2B company. So maybe they have some really uh, great insights on, on being a B2B. The challenge that we've always seen with an investor who's either just getting into healthcare or hasn't jumped into healthcare at all is that there's regulations, that there's a you know, a historic idea that healthcare takes a really long time that has really long sales cycles. And so our, our challenge there is one, we would never just raise money from someone who doesn't have any healthcare space. We'd have to make sure that in that round, or at least close to the same size of funding that they're investing in us, mm-hmm. that there's another firm that is more in the healthcare space to sort of even, even off the skill sets. But the challenge is always this, like, you know, I heard selling to insurance companies has really long sales cycles and we need a company that's going to take off really quickly. Like, this is why we don't like healthcare. And those investors are usually the ones that pass. You know, we try to learn as much as possible and build a relationship. Maybe they'll have a partner that comes onto the firm that is in the healthcare space down the line, and then we'll come up in our next round. But usually those are the ones that that don't move forward. It's it's a really hard challenge to say, yes, there's going to be a long sales cycle. It's going to be slow at first to an investor who needs a big hit really quickly. That sheet that you mentioned where you've kept track of all the conversations and the people that you've talked to sounds really valuable. Are there things on there like, I never want to talk to this person again? <laughs> I, oh, of, of course. And, and, <laughs> I think it's within in any industry, there's always, mm-hmm. you know, characters and, and people, you know, I definitely have some stories of investors who acted extremely inappropriate during, you know, meetings and those I don't typically write down on this document. I've, you know, those are the mm-hmm. one, those are far and few and, and they're locked into my brain. You know, I, I might have like a particular investor's name might come up in my head and I have this like reaction in my brain and then I have to remember why. And then, and then that situation pops up. But there's definitely notes in there of like, you know, had four meetings with this investor and then like they never replied to an email. Mm-hmm. You know, the last correspondence with them was, yes, we're in. And then ghosts, right? Like completely stopped replying to emails and then sometimes reach out like a year later asking for an update. Right? It's like <laughs> that happens. It, it, you know, I think the Do you engage like, at that point? That's so frustrating. 
You know, I do. Um, <laughs> I can't be one of these people that doesn't reply. I don't know why. I'm, I'm always trying to figure out like, all right, maybe there was like something horrible that happened in this person's life and that's why they didn't reply to me. You know, it usually turns out to just be that they're super busy. You know, some of these investors are seeing hundreds of companies pitching them within a month. It's easy to think that, you know, they should treat me special. Like they had all these meetings. I mean, I would, but I guess I try to like always put, you know, this like little bit of like, all right, I'm not going to take money from them, but I'll at least, you know, reply to them and at least acknowledge their email. Right. Well, I guess it's also, it's kind of a small community too. So even if someone is kind of a jerk to you, if you're not responding to them, that word of that could get out, I imagine, you know, there's a lot of kind of maintaining your reputation. Yeah. You know, to be doing this for 20 years, I've definitely learned that everybody knows somebody, uh, especially in the investor world. There probably is like, you know, one or two degrees of separation between most investors. They all sit on boards together. They're investors together. They either, you know, already are investors together or are hoping to be investors together on a company and they don't want to miss those types of deals. So, it's definitely a tight network there that you have to make sure that you're not ruffling fellers anywhere because that stuff spreads pretty quickly. The interplay between investor and entrepreneur is interesting to me because each person technically holds a certain amount of power, right? Like the investor is saying like, I've got the money <laughs> and I, you know, I, I see hundreds of things all the time. I'm choosing a handful that I'm going to do this and without my money, it might not happen for you. And as an entrepreneur, you're coming to the table and you're saying, I've got something really special here. And the investors that get the opportunity to be involved, I'm going to make a lot of money for hopefully. How do you think about that interplay? And how does it influence interactions that you have with potential investors then and ultimately the investors that you're working with? You know, as, as an entrepreneur, you know, unless you have one of these companies that's absolutely taking off, then you just need the capital because it's a finance problem, right? You need to put this money to work today. And it's going to fuel this growth that you've been proved out for the past two years is going to continue going. And unless you're in one of those situations, the power dynamic is on the investor. Mm -hmm. You know, they are putting money into something that's probably in most cases unproven. You know, I think as, as an entrepreneur, you have to put this mindset in that it's not so much, and this is like a rule that I have in my head is like, it's not about creating FOMO. Like I hear a lot of entrepreneurs say that you have to create FOMO, like either you're in this deal or someone else is in the deal. And I, I think that's a completely wrong way of thinking about it. I think you're going to end up with investors who are confused at, at what they're seeing. I think you're going to scare away some of the really good investors who have better opportunities that they could be jumping into. So I, I never think that that is the right way to, to, to go about fundraising. The way I always think about it is I'm either going to raise from you or maybe another investor, but chances are I'm just going to keep going even if I don't raise this round at all. And that's the option that I think most entrepreneurs don't put in on their optionality of, of fundraising is you always have the ability to not fundraise at all. And that should be your negotiating standpoint is I'm either going to continue bootstrapping this company. I'm either going to get it profitable. I'm going to cut my expenses. I'm going to land some big deal 
I'm going to pivot to something that's more profitable. I'm going to do something to keep this company going, or I'm going to take money from you. And, and I think that is a better way of balancing this power dynamic so that, you know, you're not burning the bridge because maybe you are going to slog it through the next year and then grow, and then you'll want to come back to them. And maybe that's the right time that the investment makes sense. But, you know, once you do take that money, that investor always has, in most cases, the ability to remove the CEO, to completely change up the board. There's always ways that they can do this, whether it's, you know, legally, I have a term that says I can fire you, or it's politically where you're not going to be able to raise your next round because that investor that sits on your board is not going to put money in the next round. Or when that reference call comes and says, hey, I'm going to put money in the company that you're on a board of, it's really easy for them to sort of not show enthusiasm towards your company and then you can't raise anymore. So I think that's usually how I try to balance it is just make sure it's perfect. Make sure that the investor is going to want you as an entrepreneur to build this company. They believe in what you're building so that when things get rocky, there isn't this like battle between you and, and your investor to hold on control to your company. I think that's that's a recipe for a disaster. Given that that's how you approach the investors and think about it, was there specific things about Nurse Run One that made you raise money instead of bootstrapping? I mean, we we bootstrapped for for quite a, right. a long time, right? So we yeah, we I didn't mean to imply that you hadn't. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. You know, I think the history of of Nurse One One is quite a few pivots that we've done. You know, we did try to go direct consumer and that was like, okay, we had enough metrics to show that this could grow and let's go raise money and, and blow this thing out. And then quickly got a whole bunch of pushback from healthcare side that said, well, that's a consumer play. And then consumer side that said, well, this is healthcare. Like this is too complicated for us to go into. That's sort of been the history. It wasn't until we started finding some of these B2B programs that we've been involved in, in these contracts, that we started to see the growth that's got investors more excited about what we're doing. That's been sort of our strategy is find the, bo- the model that makes sense, get traction, raise enough money from the right investors that we can prove that next milestone over the next year. The risk of how we're doing this is that there might be a window of opportunity where we have to start scaling really quickly, or we're going to miss the opportunity. I think in healthcare, it's really hard for those situations to exist. I think the market just doesn't move that way. I think the market is so big, it's so fractured that it's hard for there to be a first mover advantage in in anything in healthcare. So I don't think that we have this like risk of not raising enough money too soon. I think it's just about making sure that we're executing that we're proving that this market is there and that we're the ones to bet on. Do I remember correctly that really early on, you didn't want to rush fundraising because you wanted more flexibility for user research and that timeline? Yeah. So there there was about a year and a half where it was purely just understanding what we were building. And from an entrepreneur standpoint, there's, there's two aspects of this. One is the situation I was in personally and some of my co-founders were in where we had the luxury of doing this. And, And that to any young entrepreneur out there listening, like this is not something that most entrepreneurs can do and say, I'm going to spend the next year and a half doing nothing but understanding this market. That's what we did at first. And that was purely me saying like, I want to make sure that this is the right thing. That's going to be something I'm going to be in for the next, you know, eight, 10, 15 years. 
that was an important aspect. And we emerged from that with a direct consumer piece that nobody really wanted to fund anyways. And that was the challenge of that is like, I'm going to make sure that we're going to have the right product that patients really want. And then realizing that there's this whole other part to this thing, which is the B2B model that we weren't thinking about at that stage. So it still even took longer than that to really get this thing right. You know, our strategy from the beginning is like, let's make sure this is right before we we completely push ourselves into one path that we have to commit to. How do you think about you and your team working on a product or a company rather full-time as opposed to part-time, especially early on? Because I think the the relationship to investment there is around like salaries and stability. Yeah. You know, at the beginning it was like, we're going to take some time. So everybody go get jobs. You know, myself, I could do this without working. I could focus on nurse one, one specifically without the salary coming in. And we pulled on people onto the team who could also do that, but everybody else had to go and get full-time jobs. And that, the way that I think about that is that, you know, I want people taking a sacrifice in the startup. I don't want them being put in a personal situation where they start making the wrong decisions because they're getting pressure financially. And that's like the reality of starting a company is that at the beginning, you don't have the financial flexibility to, you know, work on something for six months. Like the thing that we should be working on is going to take another four months, even though there's this like short term win that we could take, that would be a distraction from the longer term thing. Let's do the short term thing so that we can raise money so that we can start paying the bills. I, I think that's the mistake that a lot of companies get into. So the decision to have a whole bunch of our team go get jobs and work on this part-time was so that we could spend that extra four months, that extra six months if needed, where that person doesn't feel financially strapped because of bootstrapping without a salary coming in. It would allow us to actually make the proper decisions for the business rather than the short term. How do we keep this team together financially? We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up and seeing a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. It's pretty great. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash giantrobots, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. And I highly recommend one of the ThoughtBot open source projects. Once again, thanks to Scout APM for sponsoring today's episode. So given where you're at now, then is there anything that with perspective you would have done a little bit differently when it comes to fundraising? Yeah, I, I think for Nurse One One, I, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything I would have done differently. I mean, obviously the rounds where we didn't raise or we didn't raise as much as we were hoping to, I wish I went out raising exactly how much I wanted to raise and only talked to the investors that we ended up fundraising from. But I think that there's a lot of lessons from 
pitching an investor who's the wrong investor, right? Realizing like, oh, this investor only cared about those things and that's not important to us. And now it's on my radar that some investors think that way. So I think a lot of those mistakes are things you can learn from. I think trying to raise more money than than we were able to, you know, about a year ago, I think was, you know, if I could go back and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't have been trying to raise more. We could have raised less, but we ended up still raising the amount that we needed at that time. And it was a lesson learned again on what metrics this market requires when we do get to that phase where we don't raise that much larger round. So I think those mistakes still ended up being lessons that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. So those are good things. I think when I think back of other companies that I've raised money from or companies that I've been involved with or watch closely raise money, I think the biggest mistake that a lot of them do is, is raising money from investors who aren't actually interested in investing in the company. They're investing for other reasons, whether that's, you know, one of their LPs wants them to invest in a company because of a favor, or they want to be in the deal because of another investor who's in the deal. You know, they want to sit on the board seat with this other investor because of a future investment in another company that they want to be in, or their prized founder of one of their successful companies is investing in this company. And I want to be loyal to that, that founder and also invest in this other startup that they're backing. Those are incentives that blow up really quickly. And then you're left as the founder of this company with investors who, you know, weren't ever actually interested in your company being your investors. And I think that that leaves you with a lot of dysfunction as you're also trying to build a company at the same time. I think that's probably one of the, the biggest dangers I've seen, you know, founders do from raising money. In your history, is there any ideas that you've been working on or pursuing and it just didn't work? You know, the the fundraising wasn't there, there wasn't traction, and you ended up abandoning it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I founded five companies. I've actually founded seven companies, but I never incorporated two of them. So I don't know if those count, but there's five (laughs) companies that I've officially co-founded and I, I raised money only for three of them. And one of those five Never did I even have the thought of raising money. Another one I did go out and try to raise money for. And, you know, I built this proof of concept that I thought was a really good idea. And there's actually a huge unicorn company that got built right around the same time doing almost the exact same thing. So it was a really good idea, but I went out rather than building, you know, there's this little like meme of like how you do lean startups where you you don't just build the wheels of a car and then you know, hope mm-hmm. to build the engine later. You have to build like a skateboard first and then like a bicycle and then a car. I definitely went out and I built like the scaffolding of a car, right? It was this really crappy app that looked really bad. It had really cool tech in the background and it was doing the hard part, right? We went after like the technical hard part of what we wanted to do. We couldn't really get the traction because who wants to use an app that's in a crash and who wants to use this like crappy UI that doesn't really work well, so we never got the traction and it was a consumer app. And, you know, I went to a whole bunch of investors trying to show them this concept and all they wanted to see, at least the ones I talked to was show me the traction, like you need to get traction with this. And so that was sort of put me in a place where I couldn't get to that next step. I had sort of depleted my personal resources going after this strategy. And so at the point where I needed to raise money, I was now left with no traction, but a really cool tech that's a lesson learned for sure. You know, we ended up selling the IP to another company that ended up using some of that tech. But, you know, looking back at that one, that was, if I had the ability to bootstrap for another two years, that would have been a great strategy. 
personally, I wasn't in that position to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that strategy was, was flawed from, from the get go. But if you had been able to bootstrap, you, you, you would have kept on working on it. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I knew it was a good idea. I mean, it's to jump into that idea, there's, there's a company button that was sort of in that space. There's a couple other companies that have grown in that. I think Shopify is also starting to do or ha- is doing a little bit of that, but it's this idea of the omni channel of, mm-hmm. uh, I would even say like some of the online shopping where you're having somebody shop for you it is sort of an aspect of what we were doing, but we had this product, we called it kick scout where you would use Pinterest or some something online to create a shopping list. And then if you or your friends were in that store or in a store that had that product, then it would alert them and let them know that they could purchase this product for one of their friends. You know, that was the model that we were building, but the tech underneath that was the ability to scrape a lot of e-commerce sites, understand what products different retailers have scraping Google maps so that we knew where those stores were actually located. And then the ability in the passive background that when you walked into any one of those stores, it would alert you if there was a match. And that was the tech that we built. <laughs> the The experience built on top of that was highly flawed. The, the product, the UI was a mess, but that was what we spent a whole lot of time working on. And in the end, we needed to raise and we had this cool tech but no traction to show that it was a valid idea. So you mentioned traction as one of these milestones that investors are looking for. What are the other classic milestones in order to raise? I think traction's a good one. I, I, you know, there's this idea that you have to tell the story. And I personally think that an investor who hears the story and sees the vision of what this could be especially in the early beginnings of a company is, is way more important than the early traction. I think there's a lot of ways to get faked out by early traction, either for yourself or the investors. I see it all the time where companies have huge traction and you can dive in really quickly and see, well, that's not actually their traction. They're just riding the, the backs of something else that they're getting a lot of views from. And I can think of a handful of companies right now, even in the healthcare space, that I think are growing on the back of traction. That's not actually their traction. But you know, I think that's that's a big one that investors are always looking at because they see it as proof. I personally would rather the investor doesn't need that as proof to understand the opportunity that's in front. You know, if if you need traction in the early stage to prove that there's a market there, then you don't really see the same opportunity that the entrepreneur sees. Right. If you see this like thing that this problem that exists and you see a company that's solving that problem and you can see a clear path on how that product is going to roll out and grow and become a a big company. I I think that's more important than the early traction that's going to prove that there's actually a problem there. So is traction looked at at every stage of funding and they expect it to be having an exponential growth? I, I think you have a slide that has a traction growth metric. Ho- a hockey off. stick? <laughs> a hockey stick growth. It's much easier to fundraise. I mean, you know, that giant list of investors has investors on there that passed many times. And then once the company had that hockey stick growth, they were jumping to get in it as soon as possible. And I think those are the, you know, those investors are great 
because they they're excited by the growth. You know, I just think it's more important to find the investor who's passionate about what you're doing, even when there isn't that growth. And, and to give a specific scenario, we had some pretty good growth on a metric that we were tracking and had an investor who is, you know, all in. And then when I brought them, you know, an update like three weeks before the deal was closed, I said, you know, I don't know if that traction is really our real traction. Uh, there's a couple of developments that are happening, you know, that might go away, but what we're building is still the same. And, you know, I was like literally in the beginning of trying to like pitch the company from the vision standpoint saying like, what if this traction goes away? And the investor just stopped and said, I'm still in, like, that's not why I'm investing. And that's the type of investor you want, right? Because things change, a pandemic hits and everything blows up. But if you're still building something that solves a problem and you have a great solution for it, the company's going to figure it out in the end. And I think those are the investors that are, are way more valuable than the ones that are just chasing that hockey stick growth. So in a, in a typical pitch deck, there's sort of like the standard slides and one of them is team. In your view, how important is the makeup of the founding team and specifically like, are there skill sets or roles that just need to be part of the founding team? Otherwise, you're just going to have a really hard time fundraising. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think team is important. I think if you're a founder and you're by yourself and you're not proven and an investor is giving you a term sheet. You know, it goes back to that that lesson learned that that I mentioned before. There's probably some other reason why that investor is investing in you other than your idea and you. You need a team, right? If you think of any company that's successful in your space or that mirrors what you're doing, the company as a whole is going to have a lot of facets to it. It's going to have a lot of skill sets that that company does as a whole. No one person has the ability to do everything. And so you kind of have to build a team that's balanced. There needs to be someone, you know, that depending on, on the type of business you have, you have to have someone that's strong technically. You have to have someone who's strong at marketing or sales or whatever the skill sets that that company as a whole is going to need. There needs to sort of be the foundation of that in the founding team. And I think that's hugely important. It shows a lot about how a founder is building a company. If it's just the founder and a couple of their friends, then I think that's a red flag in my mind. You didn't build the team based off the skill sets that you needed. You built the team off of who was at the table when you thought of the idea. I think that's a red flag. You know, it's, it's got to be a balanced team that can grow. You can almost see the departments forming underneath each of that founding team. I think that's a really, really important part for a company in the beginning. Have you been in a position where you've had to make the case where you just didn't have the right person on on the team at the time you were fundraising, but you had identified that as this is part of why we're fundraising is to be able to then hire a person either that you'd already identified or or that you needed to fill that role. Yeah. In fact, I think that's one of the great asks that we've we've had when we fundraise is, you know, for example, if you're if you're at the beginning of a company, you probably don't need a salesperson, at least when I look at the company that that we've built. It's about building the right product. You need the right medical people so that you're building a product that's solving the actual problem that you're trying to solve. You might need a consumer person that understands how to understand the consumer behaviors. You know, you need a technical person who's going to build the tech. You got to have all of that stuff before you start selling it. So maybe the salesperson comes a little bit later. And I think it's okay when you're pitching to say, 
you know, really big part of our next phase is sales. And I'm not really a good salesperson. I think that's a, an okay thing to say is sales is not in my repertoire. And what we need and what we're asking from any investor who comes in is to help us build out the sales part of our organization and to find that right salesperson. I think that's completely okay to say at those phase. I think if you're building a tech company and you say, you know, we need a CTO and we need a tech talent on our team and that's my ask, I think that's the challenge because if you're mm-hmm. building a tech product, you should probably have someone in your founding team who, who can build the tech. So I think it really depends on the market, depends on the company and the phase that they're in. Yeah. We have seen companies where you've worked with, you know, a consulting company or actually Shearshare, which is one of the other companies we're following along. They got started that way. And then they eventually hired a CTO or brought a CTO on, but they actually didn't do that when they were first getting started. So you can do it, but I, I think they would also agree it's a little harder. Yeah, it's definitely harder. And and I think, you know, RunKeeper in the beginning, we used a, a firm that was mm-hmm. developing almost all of the tech, at least most of the mobile part. But there was me and there was our CTO who are a part of the team who, you know, we weren't writing all the code, but at least from a product standpoint, I was overseeing the product parts of it. From a tech standpoint, we had eyes on what was being built. I think that is an important part, you know, of this. You can outsource components, but I still think that there needs to be someone on that founding team when you go out to raise your first institutional round, who at least is overseeing what is being outsourced. And you can almost see that that outsourced function as the company grows can still remain. Maybe it's going to be supplemented as they build out their tech team internally, but there needs to be someone with that talent at the founding team who who is sort of the point person that all of that is tying into. Mm-hmm. How much time do you actually spend on fundraising as a CEO? You know, I, I think the past three months, I haven't spent any time uh, on fundraising. I've gotten inbound. There's quite a few inbounds that are coming in. And I'm at this stage just saying, nope, you know, happy to chat, but letting you know I'm not fundraising. And I think only one or two of those has actually ended up in a phone call and it's just an hour. So, you know, there are phases of months that go by where, it's very, very little of my time. I think that's the exception. You know, there's a saying that you have to run a process, like run a process, run a process when you're fundraising, like, you know, create this FOMO where you reach out to all investors at the exact same time. And then, you know, if they want in, they have to get in or somebody else. I think that's a mistake. I think if you're building a relationship, you know, for the long term, I think you should always be having updates that are sent to investors that you want to at least fundraise from and pitch at that next round. Let them know what you're doing, get a sense of what they're seeing in the market. If you're hiring, you know, reaching out to them and saying like, hey, here's some of the hiring positions that we have. Do you have anybody on your radar who might be interested? I think I think that is always happening. And it's not necessarily a fundraising effort. It's time that eventually helps your fundraising. But I, I think that is always, that's like the case, I think, as a CEO, you should always have at least a part of your time, whether it's 10 or 20% of your time, always doing 
And then when you're actually fundraising, I think it's like 80, 80 or 90% of your time for three or four months where you're just purely taking meetings, getting materials ready, working on everything that you need in order to close that round. That's when it really ramps up in how much time. And I think for most startups, that happens about once a year. So mm-hmm. it's, it is a big commitment when you're building a company that's set on the path to be fundraising, that you're either building those relationships or you're running that process where you're spending a majority of your time doing it. That adds up over 20 years. <laughs> You've done your time. I think, you know, different roles that I've had, I've, I've joined early stage startups. I've been the co-founder who was more in, in charge of product, but was still, you know, in almost every single meeting and call with investors. I think that's where you have to rely on your team. You can't be building product and writing code and doing support and all this other stuff while you're fundraising. That's when you really have to have a team behind you that's actually working on the business while you're fundraising. It touches on what I I was going to ask about, which is, what is the process of involving the rest of your team in the fundraising thing? Are you doing most initial calls solo? And at what point do you pull in other people? Yeah, I've gone back and forth in this. I think it depends on on the team. Mm-hmm. The way I do this today is because I know it's going to be, you know, 100 meetings, 100 calls. We're going to get 10 who are actually probably going to invest if that if we're lucky. So the team needs to be focused on what they're doing. So at least the first few meetings until I start to get an investor who's actually digging in, that usually is just done by me. One, I think, important part of building this company is that there are key people within my company that have to feel comfortable with who we're taking money from. And those are the times that I have to say to the investor, like, I want you to meet people on my team. The challenge there is to make sure that everybody understands why they're meeting. Sometimes investors think that they're just getting pitched, right? Like, oh, he he thinks this person's so impressive that, you know, I'm going to invest because they're meeting him. I like to say, like, I have a couple of people on my team that that want to meet you. And it's because we want to make sure that we're raising from the right people. Like let them know that the Mm. interviews flipped when it's particular people on my team. They're not salespeople. They're not pitching. They're not fundraising types. They're more concerned about the company that they're spending all of their time building. And they want to make sure that if this company takes a check from an investor, and then that person might be sitting on our board, that they're still going to be working for a company that matches their values and their mission. And I think that's an important piece when fundraising to let them know why that introduction is happening so that they just don't sit there and say like, all right, tell me your background. And then it poisons the well of an, of an employee who's going, well, wait a second. <laughs> like, no, mm-hmm. I want to know your background. I want to know, you know why you're interested in this company. So I think that's one time that I pull people in. The other time is, you know, especially in the healthcare space, we'll have investors who understand this space very deeply. And they start asking questions to me that I really wish our chief nurse practitioner was in the room, right? We got a lot of investors that say like, why nurses? Why not doctors? And it's like really easy to squash that just by bringing in a nurse and maybe Mm -hmm. even our chief medical officer, a, a doctor into the room and watch how they interact with the investors, right? Show them that there's a very different personality of a nurse than a doctor. There's a different skill set than a nurse and a doctor. Let those people, the, the practitioners actually talk to the medical side of why there's a difference there. I think those are when, when I bring them in, or maybe it's a technical question and they want to know like, how's the system scaling? And then I get to bring in my CTO and like have them sit there and, and talk to them. That's the other time when 
other people are pulled into the fundraising process. Say an investor asks that technical question or how's the system scaling? Are they asking that question? And maybe this answer is it depends, but are they asking that question primarily because they actually care or because they are sort of testing the team and they want to get to know the company and the people involved and know that there's some competence there? It's a good question. I'm always sort of confused when an investor asks those types of questions like, well, you know, you know, part of our portfolio thesis is we want to make sure that products are going to ship that can scale. You know, some of the bigger firms that do a whole lot of investments never ask those types of questions. I think some mm-hmm. of the smaller firms, maybe the newer ones ask those types of questions. And I always just assume that they have a portfolio company that can't scale. Right, um, right. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> they've just gotten burnt with a product team that can't put out a functioning product. Mm-hmm. So I always just kind of go, okay, that's a legit concern because they're probably feeling the heat from another company that they're invested in. So this is a great opportunity to have you talk to my CTO who's done this many of times and you know maybe even talk about the times that we have scaled this product and it has gone through certain challenges and how we overcame them. I think that's a great time to show off the team. You know, I think that's why they're asking the question. I'm, I'm, you never know why. I think that's the challenge. You know, a lot of these calls right. are like 15 minute calls and it's the last minute where they're like, hey, you just got a question and we want to make sure it scales. Can we talk to your CTO next? And it's like, okay, sure. Um, so who knows? Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to us about fundraising. But uh, more importantly, how's that MPS score doing? <laughs> it is, you know, it's it's holding very, very firm. I just had a pitch to a client the other day and a marketing lead put it on there and it was just below 60. So it's, it is still holding up right below 60. So we, we got to crack that, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's doing really well. I mean, it, it just comes down to the, the, the personality of these nurses, right? Everything we're building on is this thesis that we have that, Nurses not only are trained medically, specifically nurse practitioners are, are just unbelievable when it comes to being professional in, in, in the in the form of providing medicine, but they're also just great people person. They understand empathy. They know how to gain trust. They're the most trusted profession in the world for a reason. And just building a product that allows them to do that when patients are worried and scared, it's the easiest way to get a great NPS score is just get out of their way. Over the next month, is there anything that you're looking ahead to that you're excited about or worried about? It's interesting. We During this pandemic, we have this front row seat of watching the healthcare space just get beaten. And then now we're starting to see signs that it's maybe not even signs, but it's really starting to gather itself and it's pushing forward. And we're seeing players emerge within the space that are executing. And I think all that stuff is like still yet to be launched, but we're seeing the early signs of some of the bigger players abandoning sort of the old guard and moving forward with projects and launching them in short time spans. And we've been pulled into a couple of these. Uh, One of them will actually launch next month. I don't know if publicly will be a company that will be, you know, in the the press releases. You know, these are enormous efforts that we're getting pulled into. But we have one that's really big for us that will be launching next month. Before the end of the year, we'll have another one that's launching as well. I think it's a, a time in healthcare right now where you have a lot of providers almost have like a, this grudge 
against the old system and how it completely left them behind. It left patients behind. You have new players who have a lot of cash on hand who can put it to use and have kind of realized that the old guard is is not going to step up anytime soon. And they've started to execute and move forward. And, and I think it's really exciting to see these companies move forward and to be a part of some of these efforts is, you know, it's just a testament to everything that we've built in the past and, and this team and, and the nurses that are on this product. So those will be launching soon. Those are exciting for us. Well, maybe awesome. next time we can convince you to just tell us and the audience privately who that part <laughs> yeah, Just is. between. Yeah, ex- exactly. There's two big ones and they're in completely different sides of the healthcare space. And I think that what we're seeing right now is everything in healthcare needs to go directly to the consumer. And that is like this giant relief. The primary care market is just getting hit really hard and they need help. The big hospital systems are focused on fighting the battle that they're fighting. And everybody else in the industry is realizing that they need to go direct to consumer. And part of it should have happened a long time ago, but now it's really big players that realize that their entire existence depends on it. And that's what we've been focusing on. So we're in this great place where we can scale really quickly. You know, we have 1,200 nurses on our platform, mostly nurse practitioners with 11 years of experience that can get in a conversation with a patient within eight seconds. And any company in healthcare that's trying to go directly to consumer that needs that trust, that empathy, that needs to engage patients and actually empower them to make the right decisions, we have a, an army of nurses ready to do that. So we're in a pretty good position as things move forward. And if people want to follow along with you and Nurse One One, where's the best place to do that? I would say our Twitter handle. You know, actually, I'd say our Instagram. Our Instagram is doing much, much more stuff these days. Yeah. So we're Nurse One One over on Instagram. Uh, It's a much better engaged uh, platform than Twitter. We've kind of stayed away from what's happening on Twitter. But if you're following along on Instagram, you'll see a lot more content. We're putting out a lot of information. I think that's very helpful to patients. I think my LinkedIn, although I don't take requests that often, but um, I'm putting putting information out there as well. But you can always go to, to nurse11.com and check us out there. Great. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. You can find me on Twitter at cpytel. And me on Twitter at lindsay3d. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.